0: Welcome to The Mindful Apprentice, brought to you by Swindon and Wiltshire Institute of Technology. In this podcast series, we want to share stories and information to help everyone make the apprenticeship a success, whether you're an employer or the apprentice. We've interviewed a wide range of apprentices, employers, specialists, charities, and clinicians to make this series. Wherever you're listening, we hope you'll find it helpful. Hello, I'm Dominic Arkwright. In this programme, some inspiration from a woman who's achieved extraordinary success. Professor of Computer Science at Durham University, a UK government advisor, trustee at Comic Relief, social entrepreneur, writer and leader of a campaign to save Bletchley Park. Not bad for a girl who left home and school at 16. This is the story of Professor Sue Black.
1: Well, so I left school at 16. I'd started doing my A-levels my family background is that i was two parents that are nurses and a brother and sister five years younger than me um and what happened unfortunately when i was 12 was that my mum died really suddenly and then my dad remarried um not very long after that and so i kind of went from living in a functional family to living in a dysfunctional family quite quickly was really unhappy there's quite a lot of bullying and sort of emotional cruelty at home and i took my, well it was O levels back then when I took them, so like GCSEs at age 16 and then in the summer holidays after that I really wanted to leave home because I was having a terrible time and luckily was able to move in with my uh, my friend and her family and so stayed with them uh, from the summer holidays onwards. So then started my A levels and it was just, it was difficult from the start really because i needed to pay my friend kate's mum rent because they didn't have loads of money so i worked in the cafe down the road after school uh i think four evenings a week like from six till ten and one day at the weekend and the school that i went to was 25 miles away so it kind of started off okay with my a-levels but then over after a few weeks really i was just so tired uh, from working every evening and having to then get up early again for school the next morning and working at the weekends and so i used to fall asleep in the sixth form common room and you know i wasn't i just wasn't doing very well uh, in my a-levels so i just thought to myself well i'm just going to have to leave education if i get a job now i can pay rent properly so yeah i just need to get a job really so i left school in the easter of the first year of a levels got a job working for the local council and didn't then go back into education for another 10 years uh, after that.
0: So Sue's story is about someone who left school with no A-levels. As we'll hear, she became very successful, but it wasn't easy. For the next couple of years, she worked for the local council, did volunteer work with refugees, became a student nurse for a while, then joined a record company.
1: Yeah, I was there for two years, and then I got married, got pregnant, and um, I I wanted to stay on at work and come back to work after I had my um, first child, but the law at the time was that the company didn't need to keep your job open unless you'd been there for over two years, and I'd been there for one year and 51 weeks, and they wouldn't keep my job open for me. So, yeah, so I left work, had my uh, first child, my daughter, and then um, because I didn't have a job I thought well I'll have another baby and then I'll go back to work like after the second one so I got pregnant again and then that turned out to be twins so yeah when my daughter was two I had twin boys so then I was like 23 years old so 23 years old with three small children um, which was actually fun I liked it It was a lot of hard work and not enough sleep but apart from that it was great and then actually I try- I tried to go back into education I started a course at the local adult education uh, college but unfortunately my ex-husband um, started becoming violent and possibly I was just thinking about it recently maybe because I was trying to go back into education and he felt threatened by it. I mean I don't actually know why but just before Christmas in the first term we had to run away one morning because he threatened to kill us all we were living in Ladbroke Grove and yeah we left early one morning so me and the three children and uh Ended up that late afternoon in a a women's refuge in Peckham. So it was a pretty traumatic day, all in all.
0: Sue and her children stayed in various refuges for six months, then got a council flat in Brixton, but still worried about her ex-husband. Then she needed a job.
1: My first thought was I need to get a job so I can earn some money um, because I hadn't really expected to be in that situation where I was the main breadwinner with three small children. But when I looked at the job market and what I'd be able to earn, because I'd left school at 16, I had five O levels, I just realised that I'd be on minimum wage, so I'd probably be like doing admin in an office or um, on the checkout in Tesco or somewhere, and. With that amount of money that I was would have been able to earn, I wouldn't have even been able to pay for childcare for the three kids. So I, so I thought, well, I can't actually go back to work, which made me think, well, what you know, what other options have I got? So I thought, well, I, why don't I try and go back into education? I didn't want to leave in the first place. I just had to because my circumstances, and so I went along to the local college, which was Southwark College in London, and asked about doing A level maths. And they said, well, actually, we've got this fast track maths course, which is a bit like an access course, which gives you the equivalent of two A levels in maths in a year. And it's just two evenings a week in the classroom and 20 hours a week, private study at home. It's called polymaths. And so I thought, well, that sounds ideal. You know, I can just get, well, just, it's not easy, but I could get a babysitter two nights a week and I could study at home. So then my daughter was then four, so I'd got her into reception in the local primary school and my sons were two, so I got them into playgroup for two hours a day. So I had kind of ten hours a week with no children when I could study and I could study in the evenings when they were in bed.
0: Sue Black then decided to go to university and got a place at South Bank University to study computing. Rarer for women in those days than it is now.
1: Yeah, so, you know, it was really interesting. So I think there were about seven mature students, something like that, out of 83 of us. And I think I was the second oldest in the class at 26 or whatever I was. And uh, almost everyone was was 18 and almost everyone was a guy. So, you know, I was in a class of 18-year-old guys. But, I mean, it was daunting at first, but, I mean, I absolutely loved it. I made loads of great friends. And I really took every opportunity to study because you know, back then I didn't have a computer at home so I had to do everything in the classroom. And particularly in the first year that was really hard because I had to take the kids to school in the morning so I wouldn't get to uni till 10 and then I had to leave at two to go and pick them up from school. So the first year was particularly difficult kind of until I made friends kind of with parents at the school and, you know, could kind of um, swap childcare with people. Yeah, the first year was really hard. I mean, I really loved it. But um the, the kind of from the childcare logistics aspect it was really difficult. We had to get fifty percent to pass and I think I got fifty two. So you know, I scraped through the first year. But then kind of year on year it got easier and easier really. And the final year I kind of felt like I was sort of in my stride, um, and managed to graduate with a two one, which I was happy with.
0: Next step, the PhD, even though she had no idea what one was.
1: So in the final year of my degree We all had to do a project, and so I'd met up with my, in fact, the second supervisor of my project. In one particular meeting, he said to me, what do you think about doing a PhD? So I said, oh, I'd love to do a PhD, not telling him that I didn't know what a PhD was. (laughs) I wasn't going to say, what is a PhD? You know, because I thought if he was offering me something, it must be great, right?
0: And Sue helped fund herself by doing some part-time teaching. The question is, what drove Sue to the success she achieved?
1: I mean I think all I can say really having thought about it a few times over the years is that I think because because my mum died you know when I was really young and I had lots of time to think you know I was kind of sat in my bedroom for three years really from my age 13 to 16 just thinking about life and what was important and stuff and also thinking you know I could die tomorrow which you know I've I always thought that I was going to die young as well because my mum did and you know like I'm now nearly twice the age she was when she died. So I think I kind of always always had in the back of the my my mind that you know I could be dead tomorrow sort of thing. So if I want to do something, I better get on with it because um, I might you know I might not have the time in the future. So I think that's partly it. And I think maybe because I was able to overcome such massive challenges in my life, it stopped me from being scared of other challenges. I think so. Those kind of things, and also doing things that I really care about. So I I guess that kind of fits in with thinking I might die young, but just thinking I've only got one life and if I care about these things, I just need to get on with them and not worry about what anyone thinks about it.
0: And she remembers her first conference.
1: That was like a traditional academic computer science conference back then, so it was probably about 10% women, 90% men. Again, I hadn't thought about the gender balance at all. I hadn't thought about being a woman in tech or anything like that. just I was in computer science. And so I went to a few conferences that were a bit like that. And then I went to a women in science conference in Brussels. And, you know, I walked in and I was like, oh God, you know, I've got to talk to people I don't know. I was thinking to myself and I went, picked up my badge and went and got a cup of coffee and stood at one of those standing tables and there was a couple of women there and we all just started chatting. And like for the whole conference, I made made loads of friends and it just felt like I was chatting to loads of mates. And I'd never had that experience at a conference before. You know, I'd always been, felt scared and isolated really it just kind of changed my life really it really helped me to to realize that if you're in the majority life is just easier you know so when I was in the majority at a women in tech conference you know we all just got on and had a chat with each other whereas when I was in a sort of 10 percent minority at a regular computer science academic conference you know I didn't feel comfortable and I didn't feel at ease and it wasn't easy to go and talk to people. So I came back from that conference in Brussels and started the UK's first online network for women in tech, BCS Women. So it's British Computer Society Women's Network. And hundreds of women joined straight away, really. And you know it's still going today with over a thousand women, I think, and, and the whole idea was really just to bring women together so we could chat to each other about the things that we loved around technology and also with the aim of You know, if some of us were going to a conference, well, then we'd let each other know and meet up there, so we'd have someone to talk to. In
0: 2003, Sue's interest in the role of women in technology was roused again by a visit to Bletchley Park, home of the World War II codebreakers, where she came across a group of men working to rebuild Alan Turing's bomb machine, used to speed up the process of cracking the Enigma code.
1: Yeah, they told me all about these machines, which I thought were incredible, and then asked me why I was there. So I said, I'm here representing this group of women in computing. And the guy I was chatting to, John, said, oh, did you know that more than half the people that worked here were women? So I said, no, I had no clue about that at all, because I didn't know any women worked there. So I said, how many people worked here? And he said, more than 10,000 people were at Bletchley Park and the outstations. So I was completely blown away because I really did think it was 50 old blokes um so to find out that actually it's about eight thousand women and many younger women as well um were involved um in the operations at bletchley park it just completely blew me away so so that's the first time i went there i found out about the women and i thought well i need to raise the profile of the women that worked at bletchley park because i didn't know about it and i would be very interested in in knowing that so obviously the story's not really out there so went away, managed to get some funding to run an oral history project to capture the memories of the women that worked at Bletchley Park. The CEO of Bletchley Park at the time said that they were teetering on a financial knife edge and he was really worried they were getting less and less visitors to the site and that was their main income from visitors paying to get in and he said you know and if we um, close down through lack of funds we won't be able to open again it would just be too difficult so so that'll be it really you know we've managed to kind of keep this site alive since the second world war but it's uh, it's in sort of critical danger of uh, of shutting down and that'll be it so i thought well that's terrible but it was kind of in the back of my mind i didn't really do anything about it and then i got invited up to a reception at bletchley park a few months later so it was in 2008 and um I uh, did a full tour of the site with one of the veterans. So one of the guys that worked there, you know, took us around and was telling us about all these major code-breaking achievements in all the different huts. You know, some of the code breakers I think were as young as 16, and some of them were women. And yeah, it was all very exciting stories. And at the end of the tour, he said, and the work that was done here was said to have shortened World War II by two years. And at that time, 11 million people a year were dying. So potentially, the work that was done here saved 22 million lives. And I just thought, this place can't close, like, that, that's terrible, like it just can't close, I've got to do something about it. I'd become a full-time lecturer during my PhD, and then I just applied for promotion any time I could, so I became a, a senior lecturer, then a principal lecturer. And so by now, in 2008, I was um, head of department at University of Westminster. Uh, head of a computing department, and so I was on this email list for all the heads and professors of computing in the country, so I just emailed all of them, sent a photo of one of the huts that looked like it was falling down and said we've got to save Bletchley Park. Got a great response um, from those uh, heads and professors. We wrote a letter to the Times, which I think 98 of them signed, uh, which went in the Times newspaper in 2008 in July, and I just tried to get any publicity I I could and managed to get in touch with Rory Keflin-Jones at the BBC who then a week later interviewed me at Bletchley Park saying I'm ashamed to be British, why don't we look after our heritage. So that was amazing, we got amazing coverage really quickly but then actually everything went quiet and Bletchley Park didn't have any more money so nothing had actually happened. Um, and ended up really running a three-year campaign from 2008 to 2011 to, to make sure that Bletchley Park was saved um, for posterity.
0: And after three years of campaigning and millions of pounds raised, Bletchley Park was saved. And now Professor of Computer Science, award-winning academic and campaigner, Sue still has to pinch herself to believe what she's achieved since being a shy teenager who dropped out of school at 16
1: all the time honestly it still feels a bit like a dream to be honest um particularly when I think about how I felt you know like 10 years ago 20 years ago um how I felt about myself and my level of confidence which was extremely low a lot of the time um but I I just basically I think forced myself to do things you know I really pushed myself out of my comfort zone again and again and again and the thing is it it just gets easier over time I think you know a lot of things that we do and aren't worried about are because we've done them a lot you know so the more you do something just the easier it gets.
0: So what is Professor Sue Black's message for apprentices just starting out?
1: It's quite hard when you're younger to know exactly what you want to do I mean I didn't really as you've heard kind of from the different jobs that I did and I think that um, you know don't always think that you're going to get it right first time you know I, th- I think I could have stayed in nursing and hated my career. You know I could have stayed doing lots of different things and not enjoyed it at all um, and luckily I kind of like changed went on to the next thing went on to the next thing and um, I think in a way that's the thing that's helped me be successful is that when I haven't enjoyed what I'm doing I haven't stayed doing it and it's a very sort of basic thing but I think a lot of the time we're kind of trying to get everything right all the time and if we don't get it right we feel like we failed but but i think that's the wrong kind of attitude you've got to find what's right for you and that's you know and you know yourself better than anyone else does so if you don't feel right with what you're doing then then change it up and do something else don't don't be scared to leave one thing and try something else We seem to have this thing in society that um, the brainy ones are the ones that do well at school. Well, I don't think that's true, you know, so that's one type of brainy. But there's, you know, there's loads of different ways of being smart at doing things. And I think the smartest thing to do is to work out what you like doing, because then you're going to do it well, I think. And there are just so many opportunities in so many different areas. So
0: quite an inspiring story from Sue Black about what you can achieve if you want to. I hope you found it interesting. Until next time, I'm Dominic Arkwright. That's all for now. Thanks for listening to this edition of The Mindful Apprentice. We hope you found something in it which was helpful to you or perhaps a colleague or friend, whether you're a new starter or a seasoned professional. If you've been affected by anything you've heard in the podcast or want to find out more about organisations which can provide help and support, go to sawiot.ac.uk forward slash The Mindful Apprentice.